It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timp. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. I'm Jeff Manasso. China and Russia now meeting as the leading global opponents of Western power with strained relationships between both countries and the U.S. And as Xi Jinping seeks a historic third term and as Russian forces are on the retreat in Ukraine. The partnership between China and Russia and more, more specifically Xi and Putin is really rooted in a mutual loathing of the United States rather than a shared vision for the world. This is the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Do you use oxygen therapy to breathe? If you've been prescribed oxygen, you know the problems that come with it when you're tied to an oxygen tank or concentrator. Going out of the house is a burden and nobody likes to be stuck inside alone. Now you can live life on the go with a lightweight Inogen portable oxygen concentrator. Inogen is oxygen therapy that moves with you. Travel around the corner or onboard an aircraft with an Inogen portable oxygen concentrator that provides the medical grade oxygen your doctor prescribes in a device that weighs less than five pounds. Inogen's longest lasting device delivers 12 hours of oxygen on a single battery charge. Call now to speak with an Inogen oxygen specialist and learn how you can try an Inogen risk-free for 30 days. Give us a call right now, 1-800-245-9878. Don't manage a heavy tank when you leave the house. With Inogen, you can get the oxygen you need with a system that's so small and light, it goes almost anywhere. Learn how you can experience an Inogen system for yourself risk-free. Call now, 1-800-245-9878. Inogen devices are by prescription only. Battery runtimes vary by device and setting usage. Terms and conditions apply. For safety information, visit Inogen.com. It's a meeting that's getting a lot of attention as Chinese leader Xi Jinping travels outside of China for the first time in more than two years to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. A face-to-face conference in Uzbekistan on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. And when both of their countries are facing staunch international criticism, Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and China for its increasing aggression toward Taiwan. What we're going to see this week is uh, sort of a natural build-out from the No Limits Partnership announcement that was made uh, last year between Xi and Putin. We're joined by Foundation for Defense of Democracy's China program, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow Craig Singleton. This is sort of a natural follow-up to that. You know, it comes at an interesting time and a, a sort of a difficult time in their partnership. You know, fearing a U.S. counter-response, China has you know, steadfastly refused to violate international sanctions against Russia and has forced uh, even Moscow to request military support from the North Koreans. And so I think right now what we're sort of seeing is She's reemergence after what has been a two-year self-imposed isolation on account of COVID, and an opportunity for both leaders uh, to sort of present themselves as a alternative to the United States and to the UN General Assembly gatherings that are starting this week in New York. So, I mean, that 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 poses a, many different questions. You know, who. Who, who, who do you think asked for this meeting? And with all that's going on with, the, with both of these countries, uh, who's got the upper hand? 
I would imagine that they both uh, were interested in seeing each other. Um, they haven't seen each other in quite some time. Um, and the summit's scheduling was pretty intentional. Um, as I mentioned, this week starts the UN General Assemblies in New York. Neither she nor Putin are going to New York to deliver an address. And so what they're trying to do is present uh, the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization Summit as a counterweight to the UN system. And it's sort of uh, meant to undermine what is largely considered to be the U.S.-led international order. And so this meeting is really an opportunity, I think, for them to um, show themselves as a united front. Um, but at the same time, Xi Jinping is going to use this trip and this meeting to diversify China's regional partnerships, primarily as a hedge against Russia's increasing international isolation. You talked about this no-limits partnership agreement. China's ambassador to the U.S. tried walking back that, suggesting that there's been sort of a, a misunderstanding of China-Russian relations amid Moscow's assault on Ukraine. Now, when we talk about no-limits partnership, are we also talking about energy, i.e. oil, and perhaps the future of currency in the U.S. dollar? I mean, I think that from China's perspective, they want to be careful about how they classify this so-called marriage of convenience, which has really always been more symbolic than substantive, although we have seen uh, interesting deepening in the energy space in particular. China is very eager to finalize a pipeline project that will connect China uh, and Russia. And right now, you know, the Chinese sort of are seeing Russia facing intense international criticism and isolation. And this is actually an interesting time for the Chinese to weaponize that and sort of leverage China, uh, Russia's current position to get that deal through and on terms that are favorable to China. I think that the big challenge, though, is that the partnership between China and Russia, and more, more specifically Xi and Putin, is really rooted in a mutual loathing of the United States rather than a shared vision for the world. You know, Putin, for the better part of two decades, has relished Russia's role as a spoiler, often resorting to political and military aggression to subvert and shock the liberal international order. And she has really waxed poetic about, you know, reforming and improving the international system. Um, and so what you're really seeing here is, you know, Putin's impatience to dismantle the post-Cold War architecture is it was always sort of destined to collide with, you know, Xi Jinping's long-term desire to co-opt it. Well, in, in part of that, part of that control in, in, on China's side is is technology. Tell us about your thoughts on passing the Chips and Science Act this month, that two hundred eighty billion dollar bill that aims to counter China's growing influence in technology. Does it do enough to challenge China? What other protective moves could the U.S. make to keep pace with China, and, and what could China do to counter that? Well, the Chinese have certainly spent the better part of a decade investing themselves tens of billions of dollars into uh, AI, emerging tech, and even semiconductors. And while they have made uh, pretty remarkable advances in the AI space, China's semiconductor industry has really lagged behind. And there are, in fact, a number of investigations going on in China about how that money was spent was there a return on investment? And I suspect that here in the United States, we're going to encounter some similar questions. You know, the devil is always in the details. How is this money going to be spent? Are there a number of guardrails that were proposed for that legislation to prevent the Chinese from uh, taking advantage of new and emerging research uh, were stripped out of the bill um, before passage? And so, 
for example, there's nothing preventing a U.S. university who is going to potentially millions of taxpayer dollars to work on next generation technology or semiconductors. There's nothing preventing that university um, from having a, a Chinese national and including a Chinese national that's associated with China's military industrial complex as a part of those discussions because a lot of that research is, is not classified. And so I think that lack of guardrails uh, presents a major opportunity for China to take advantage of our investments. And it will really come down to strict congressional oversight of how that money is being spent. Um, at the end of the day, I do think we have to be careful about how closely we mirror China. You know, just because China is spending $160 billion on, you know, certain industries or semiconductor space, does that mean that the United States government has to be invested in that space? Or can we look for other ways to work with private sector partners and universities um, and, our, and our broader defense industrial base to maintain advantage in these sectors? And I think that we're still at the early stages of what that's going to look like long term. Semiconductors and tech is just one of those conversations. But I imagine that over the coming years, we're going to think about different sectors, including EVs, and think, where does the U.S. government actually need to sort of tip the scales here? And it, it's going to get messy, but I would say long term, uh, those investments may help us keep that competitive edge against Beijing. We're speaking with Craig Singleton, China Program Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. More with Craig next. Sick of the one-size-fits-all method when it comes to health care, especially when it comes to your ED treatment? Well, good news. Now you've got options with Hims. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatments such as chewable mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for less. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you for free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time to join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMS.com rundown. That's H-I-M-S dot rundown for your personalized ED treatment options. HIMS.com rundown. Hardmints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety or effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. China is also seen as the U.S.'s biggest competitor in space, recently echoed by Lieutenant General Bradley Saltzman, nominated to be the second leader of the United States Space Force. What is China's game in space, and what do you think they're looking to do? Well, I think that China has been pretty clear about prioritizing its investments in space. It sees space as a um, currently a, a disputed theater, if you will, um, just like the Chinese sort of view the Arctic. And so from their perspective, the rules haven't been written in space, or that the rules that were written uh, were really written by the the United States and the Soviet Union at first, and then the United States and Russia, who were the two key players, um, sort of battling it out in this theater. China wants to say and wants to vote, and I think that uh, increasingly as they make those strategic investments, as they develop these unique space capabilities, the United States has to take note of those developments and, and is sort of forced 
um, by default to engage with the Chinese and sort of determining some guardrails here, some rules of the road. And that's that's only to the extent that the Chinese are even interested in having those sorts of conversations. We see, you know, very provocative Chinese military activity across the globe um, that really diverts and sort of diverges from standard operating procedures that the United States and other advanced militaries sort of use for safety and for communication. And I think that the real risk here is that some of those close calls or near misses that we've seen here uh, on Earth will replicate in space. Uh, it's really incumbent, I think, upon the United States to, to really lead here. Um, I think that there's some interesting overlap with European partners, obviously, and traditional partners and allies in the space who are increasingly dependent on space-based assets to maintain GPS and you know, basic infrastructure. The question is, can you convince the Chinese to be a part of those conversations? And to the extent that they are, do they abide by sort of the rules of the road that are that are laid down? And I think we're sort of in uncharted territory here. Um, and it's there's going to require, I think, like a very strong push from the United States to help lead those conversations and also establish what the norms and rules are there. Speaking of uncharted territory, I thought this was pretty interesting, and not a lot of people are talking about this. The White House this week shrugged off questions from reporters over China gobbling up land in the U.S., including land near military bases. One example, 370 acres of land near Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota, over $6 billion in homes and land, according to the National Association of Realtors last year alone. What do you make of that? Yeah, I thought uh, Kirby's remarks were sort of a head scratcher, and I think um, they've, re- you know, the White House has sort of received a serious push on on Kirby's comments. This is not a about residential purchases. I think there's both the national security concerns um, that emanate from having um, Chinese land purchases and what may be located on some of that land close to some of our sensitive infrastructure and military bases. Another factor that's sort of feeding into this is, you know, China's interest in food security. You know, China imports almost all of its food. Um, The connectivity between U.S. farms and China is strong. Uh, The Chinese have sought to weaponize that connectivity, uh, particularly during tariff discussions that occurred during the Trump administration. And I think that some of these purchases, uh, particularly in the farm space and the agricultural space, are driven by a very strong need uh, from the Chinese Communist Party to ensure food security. And it's not something that we in the United States typically think about a lot um, or really discuss, but it's a topic that's discussed very often and very widely back in China, where it's not uncommon for there to be unusual food shortages um, and challenges with food imports. And so I think that there are as with most things involving China, this is sort of a multi-layered problem. There's a national security component. Um, there's an obviously an economic component. And that the challenge is that there is no federal policy um, that sort of dictates land purchases, and maybe there shouldn't be. Um, but at least at the state level, certain state houses and governors across the country um, – Governor, uh, Florida Governor DeSantis raised this several weeks ago as well. There has to start to be a conversation about how do we maintain appropriate transparency on Chinese land purchases? Is there a special process that uh, states want to uh, use to evaluate those purchases before they're completed? What sort of monitoring happens after the fact? And once again, we sort of see this sort of real lack of a 
legal and regulatory structure to do that. Um, this is, I think, an emerging space that's going to be getting a lot more attention from Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, but I do think that we're still sort of um, at the early stages of understanding why China's making these purchases and how, how extensive they are across the United States. Your expertise is, is really broad. So in, in layman's terms, what do you see as China's long game? Uh, let's look at that. And, and, and any weaknesses that the U.S. may have and what our leaders are doing about it? I think we're all still sort of coming to terms with the notion or the concept that the Chinese have said for years that you know, China is an ascendant power and that the West is in decline. And I think there was a moment uh, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, where every available data point showed, you know, a China growing, a China getting stronger, uh, a China that was making these rapid geopolitical advances across the board. And then COVID happened. And but I think we're sort of still seeing right now and trying to wrap our heads around is how do you develop a strategy for today? when the data doesn't necessarily match just a few years ago. You know, China's economy is in an absolute tailspin. Um, the effects from China's zero COVID policy have been devastating um, on huge swaths of China's economy. You have a current housing collapse, uh, massive debt, increasing unemployment. Nearly 20% of all um, 18 to 24-year-olds living in China are unemployed. And all of these sort of structural economic challenges that sort of make us question, well, is China actually going to overtake us? And can China afford to overtake us? And are these major demographic challenges that China's facing? Um, you know, how does the U.S. sort of position for a reality where perhaps um, – you know, China isn't able to overtake us, but they're still a very serious competitor. Um, and even as the door closes on China to overtake the United States, does that lead China's government to undertake very risky uh, and perhaps very aggressive action, whether it's about Taiwan or in the international space in general? And so I think in this very moment, everyone is sort of trying to get a grip on how bad things are in China and where the United States is in a position to sort of maintain competitive edge, but also thinking about where we can maintain a Chinese reliance or dependence on the United States. You know, the Chinese talk about being absolutely reliant on themselves and reducing the need for Western capital or uh, Western technology to maintain their growth and development. Um, but I think there's some argument to be made that we actually want the Chinese to be dependent on the United States uh, in certain key sectors. What we want to make sure that we do on our side is not be dependent on them in areas that are critical to our national defense. That includes semiconductors, that includes EV batteries, that includes lots of inputs into our defense industrial base. We're still very much at the beginning of this conversation that probably should have happened about 10 years ago, but it's better to have it now than never. Craig Singleton, China Program Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. Thanks again for being with us on the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.
I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.